0: Right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome from Singapore Blockchain Week, actually from sunny Tokyo. That's the world we live in these days. We have a very elite panel here this morning, uh, one hour of time. So we'll try to get all the insight out of you. We're very honored to kick off the day of side events at Singapore Blockchain Week today with this webinar sponsored by Chintai. And so, David, since you brought this all together, we'll let you do the introduction, please. Thank you very much, Norbert. An absolute pleasure
1: to uh, welcome all of our distinguished guests on today's panel. And I would just like to thank you all for attending the Shintai event as part of Singapore Blockchain Week. I think we're very much at the cusp of a wholesale restructuring of the global financial system, which is both required and overdue. Uh, as a company, we've been working for over two and a half years to build out a high performance, fully regulatory compliant issuance and secondary trading platform capable of handling a diverse range of digital assets that are possible and are very much looking forward to connecting him with the rich ecosystem of talented entrepreneurs, financial partners and investors in Singapore and across Asia. So as we deploy and contribute to the region's world-leading growth in this area, we're very much looking forward to uh, meeting and connecting with as many of you as we can. And with that said, I'll hand over to you, Norbert. Thank you.
0: So the interesting field of securities token or digital securities is that regulators in many jurisdictions have come to the conclusion that securities tokens are actually securities and that makes it very simple from a regulatory perspective. know I would like to start with you. You're the first and only regulated custodian, so we're building the conversation up from the bottom. Most people always start with the trading, we'll start with custody today. You've made a decision, you're regulated. What we've heard also over the last two years or so was always that custody is really the missing piece that we need for institutional adoption of crypto more broadly. I think we've run out of excuses either 2020, early 2021 will be finally the mass adoption, quote-unquote. You with Propine are a key piece to that puzzle. what are you doing? How are you doing it? And why have you chosen to be in a fully regulated segment of the market?
2: Why custody? I I think you very aptly put it when you said that it is a very, very critical component of the entire system. I come from a banking background, a capital markets background, been a trader with treasury markets for a very long period of my career. And having that background when I entered the fintech space and while working on the ground in the crypto space, I quickly recognized that if, The whole idea of crypto digital securities or tokenized securities has to really gain ground. Regulation can't be issued away, can't be wished away. I think it's very important to always realize that regulations, even though they may seem onerous at times, they are there for a very good reason. And they have evolved over a period of time because of certain human behaviors and the way we interact together in civil societies. And you can't change that or expect large systemic changes which govern how how people's behaviors or how they interact with each other. And that's why these regulations, at least in sh- you know short to medium term or even long term, are not really going to go away. So we need to have a regulated infrastructure players in the market to provide an entire end-to-end solution. Now, in 2017, most of the people were of the opinion that custody is something that only banks are going to do and that this is no space for a startup for very good reasons, right? I mean, there are certain good reasons why you would expect that. But I think it's always about either you can wait for a solution to be developed by someone else or you can actually take charge and say, okay, here we are. This needs to be done and we're going to do it. And I think that's where startups are always way ahead of the market, where no matter what challenges are there and no matter how many naysayers, are there, you're going to go out there and you're going to get shit done. And I think that's where TruPine came in as well. And we said, okay, everyone's talking about tokenization. Everyone's talking about trading systems, but everybody's leaving custody to be one of those things that only very large big boys are going to do. And a lot of people thought that there is no way for a small startup to get that kind of license. I was actually very, very fortunate to have met some very good people, helpful people, people who believed in us, people who believed in the inevitability of this outcome. And my fellow panelists here, Nizam is one of them. He was very, very critical in, uh, you know, helping us, you know, actually go on this journey. And today, thanks to Nizam in a very, very large way, we managed to have the difficult conversations with MAS. And today we are in the FinTech sandbox with MAS and have the Capital Market Services License for custody, which actually is the highest type that you can handle or or you can have to do the type of business that we're doing.
0: Wonderful. Thank thank you. you. And already the handover to Nizam, which is great. What do you see as the asset classes that will be tokenized first.
3: To answer your question on what kind of asset classes, I think we are only limited by our imagination, right? What's really exciting about tokenized assets is that technology is a huge enabler. We've seen use cases in real estate, in securities, in all kinds of securities, debt, equity, funds, revenue sharing arrangements, commodities, or even intangible commodities, and all kinds of derivatives. And what's really great is that technology through smart contracts has just opened up all kinds of possibilities i just like to touch a bit about regulations as well, because that's a matter close to heart. I think we are at a stage where regulators have done a lot. Clearly in Singapore, I think, credit to the MES, they have done a lot to facilitate setting up of uh, issuance platforms, secondary trading platforms, and other critical members of the ecosystem like uh, custody, like what Propine is doing. You said that it's very clear, securities token is a securities. Now, that's a little bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's clear that there's this whole body of securities laws that would apply to it. However, I think there are a lot of legacy regulations that were drafted in a world that was very different. And I was responsible for that, having been in the MES drafting regulations once upon a time. In the US, securities regulation was drafted in 1933. It was a terribly different world then. So rules regarding, say, prospectus requirements and you know some of the conduct rules for broker-dealers and even force-fitting certain models into classical boxes, broker-dealers, exchanges, clearing and settlement could cause problems, right? Especially when you talk about something like clearing and settlement. On the blockchain, everything happens almost instantaneously. On the tech, you remove a lot of the need for a central counterparty to take on the risk. But yet, regulators and regulations come from a certain preset mindset. And I think that's something that will evolve over time. And I think once you address those issues, that will open up the vast possibilities for tokenized assets.
0: Certainly it's limitless and only our imagination draws the boundary. I think my two favorites are the wave financial tokenization of Kentucky bourbon. And I think Chia from the, the Singapore Fintech Association was looking into tokenizing cows in Myanmar, which I find very creative as well. With that, you're saying over to you, kind of similar question, but we you want to take a step at the stablecoin question, we have stable coins that are regulated and some that are not. Where do you see this? is mapping out and what will be Singapore's role in that overall ecosystem?
4: As an academic, I do research in these areas and speak to some of the players in the ecosystem from time to time driven by research questions that we have. Stablecoin, I think, is here to stay in some form or other. In terms of, I think, the question that was asked by Tuhina by Propine earlier on is about the value chain itself. And I think that's also hinted in Nizam's question about the old value chain in the old era versus the new value chain that comes up because of um, no technology disruption, also the fintech space here. If you put stablecoin in that context here, in the evolving regulatory regime here, whether it's regulated or unregulated, I think that position will continue to evolve. Whichever player you are in the value chain, I think we need to be able to ask the right regulation questions from time to time. This regulation sometimes is not just within the jurisdiction, but across jurisdiction as well. What What uh, is accepted, regulated in one market uh, may not apply to another jurisdiction. This conversations came up in our research in terms of how do you therefore address this and therefore have this at the top of the mind. We talk about business model strategy and the related questions about making this successful. The other part is this in terms of looking at stablecoin itself. For me, it's not just being a regulated instrument, one jurisdiction versus another, but how does stablecoin provides value? It's a key question we ask in strategy and business model. It's the value proposition that's behind the stablecoin. So talking about issuance, the usage, the maintenance, and the transfer. All this have impact on regulators as well. In terms of successful stablecoin operations going forward, also in view of perhaps maybe more stringent regulatory scrutiny and so on, anti-money laundering and all the other stuff that comes with it, one has to bear this in mind. I've seen some other stuff out there that says, no, if this is not on the radar screen as you go through this and not being mindful of this, this has impact in terms of how this may enable the venture to be able to deal with the issues that come later trying to look at this value proposition of the stable coin. It's not just stable, what value it creates. So for me, it's basically how do we create value from stable coin and how do we capture value from it? I think it's more of a taking a transient position, hypothesis emerging as the business situation unfolds.
0: Now that we can ultimately tokenize anything, the question is, should we, do we actually have a market for that? if we can start with you on that. How do we create market depth?
5: Regulation is a key. I mean, back to Tahina and worked with uh, Nizam and his teams earlier on. The concept of regulation is one thing. The concept of central markets or central marketplaces is another. In the early days of blockchain revolution, the whole concept was not to have centralization. So it's a bit of a catch-22, but even even the largest purely digital exchanges have centralization because you have a central order book. Going to the argument in a plus of tokenization I mean, my background is I come out of exchanges. The idea of creating a central marketplace and bringing liquidity to a professional level is really key. And if you open up any of the pure digital sites today, like a Binance, for example, they've got a whole column for liquidity providers. And that's a nomenclature that comes out of the traditional markets, you know, the market makers, liquidity providers. That used to be done at a membership level on the trading floors. There were professional uh, independent broker dealers and such. Today, that's electronified. We're stepping into an asset class, carbon, and carbon. Carbon has many different faces. Uh, ESG is the one probably most people know that's now attached to all the listed companies in the world. Uh, CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, that's the warm and fuzzy that everybody has social pressure more in the West, I think, than in the East at the moment. Mandates of sustainability now from the Singapore government level, that was part of the policy speech a year ago for National Day from the prime minister. So countries are taking on that role. And then you have the Paris agreements um, that are coming into effect somewhat slowly, simply because of the COVID challenges but more importantly, people are saying, we need to have this. We need to have the E in the ESG. The social is is a bit easier. You can have proper board mix. Um, You can have a gender equality and payment and the concept of uh, money's flowing down to different places. The G is the governance. That's the regulation. The E is, how do you do it? The markets today for carbon credits are basically over the counter. OTC, it's unregulated in its trading, but it's very regulated in its registration certification process. It's very opaque in its pricing. It's non-securitized, which is really interesting. And that's really the opportunity of attaching it to a token and taking the best practices of uh, personally using the Ethereum structure, ERC and the smart contract constructs, bringing it onto main chain and main net. Etherscan will have full clarity across the entire exchange and will have real-time settlement. Uh, Nizam and I have gone back and forth a lot on this. Um, that is really the beauty of all technology and the structure and the construct. So I'm doing carbon. But how I started looking at it was there's a lot of problems in the commodity food chain. Actually, only a small percentage of it actually ever gets to an exchange. Probably 94, 95 percent of the total deliverability commodities in the world and may have an exchange traded hedge price are delivered non-exchange and are dependent upon many different types of technology for tracking proof warehouses? Is it in a tank farm? And has it been rehypothecated? And that's a real big question today. And there's been some challenges in COVID in this region, basically multiple lending against the same cargoes, or even if the cargoes were in the tanks and such like that. So our proof of concept was that we could attach a carbon credit, use a number of the existing structures that are there today that are used by the industry, and add some of the new best practices around a blockchain distributed ledger architectures, main net tracking, registration processes, the avoidance of double counting. And bring it all the way through the whole commodity food chain or the commodity trade finance chain and bring it into essential liquidity. So, back to your question can you bring liquidity to non liquid assets? Yes. You can. I think regulation is very key. It's been very supportive for us from MAS to develop this new market here. We are pushing some boundaries from a technology perspective, breaking some of the accepted practices for how exchanges are constructed, which is not a bad thing. And we're pushing some of the limits on settlement processes, bringing in typical OTC bilateral settlement processes, but bringing it onto an exchange in a transparent methodology
0: Let's take a look at the public and private markets. In the private markets for a long time, you had secondary trading of employee shares, for example, to provide liquidity. But obviously, that is very low volume and doesn't pay it in comparison to what you see in algorithmic electronic trading today. Some of your competitors primarily focused on the private markets. Still, so are you going to crack the public markets with real institutional trading volumes?
1: That's definitely the plan. I mean, if we're talking about Token liquidity here. I certainly echo the sentiments of Thomas there that it's very much been one of the persistent challenges, I think, in this space for a long time. And it increases risk for investors as well, price volatility. It can impact the underlying economics of of an asset or indeed company or or an application. Certainly, the way that we have viewed this is rather than being, for example, specific to a single use case like carbon, we're obviously looking at this across the range of lots of different potential asset classes. We've already said, for example, that we can tokenize anything potentially here. And part of what we're there for offering as a service is not just the rapid regulated issuance side, but also the opportunity for issuers to actually factor in the need for liquidity into the underlying design of what they're issuing. So part of that integrated service, without going into too much of the detail necessarily on this and the underlying mechanics, involves utilization of the banker algorithm, an efficient pool market that can act as a highly liquid market that can be integrated and leveraged by other exchanges ongoing for arbitrage and to act as liquidity and market makers with an incentivization mechanism for the market makers also built into that. So, you know, there are lots of different ways I think you can look at this. And certainly we are typically viewing issues like liquidity as a design aspect needs to be fed into the services we provide and also the underlying design of of what's being issued out by the underlying token issuers as
0: well. So we have a question here for you that uh, aligns very nicely. So what deficiencies and cost savings can be realized over traditional security sampling by automating the offering, servicing, custody and compliance? The underlying efficiency potential from
1: this, I think anybody who's worked in financial services and understands what goes on under the hood in the full trade lifecycle is going to be quite familiar with different facets of this, the the multitude of data sources that you have between the counterparties that are carrying out all forms of trade. You've got the settlement and matching aspects. You have, of course, the the regulatory aspects and reporting to local jurisdictional regulators and just how much that can differ and, and just how challenging all of those different aspects can be. Really where I get most excited about leveraging a blockchain is is that vision of actually leveraging it as the full true golden source for being a a representative on every level, including legal position for an entire industry or an entire market. I think there's different kinds of models that we're going to see and we'll see a lot of interoperability and servicing between those, but that's definitely, um, I think, a core aspect.
0: Moving to the next question, maybe a bit more on the custodian side. So the question is, do the panelists envision that we'll need custodian for our digital assets or an individual personal wallet? We'll separate out the institutional versus the individual investor side a bit more.
2: I would say that we need to distinguish between what type of digital assets are there in the first place. So there are digital securities and then there are crypto kind of digital assets, which potentially can be used as e-money or as you know payment services. If we're talking about a digital assets that can be used for payment services. I would look at them pretty much like how you would treat money in general. You always have a bank where you keep a substantial amount of that money. You don't keep it stuffed under the mattress or in your own house walls, right? And for a good reason. But you do keep a certain amount of it in your personal wallets to be able to make certain purchases, which can't potentially or may not necessarily be done via e-apps or whatever, you know, stuff like that till the point and that actually that point is fast approaching as well when everything is going to be done digitally in which case you may not necessarily need your individual wallet you would probably keep everything with a custodian or a bank and then you're going to spend using these APIs which are going to have a seamless effect so you don't necessarily need to take that risk of keeping your crypto or your payment tokens in your own wallet I think that time is fast approaching now the second class of assets is digital securities which is what we're talking about today in that case I think there is one aspect uh, which is about you receiving the securities and keeping them and you know keeping them safely and the second aspect is about actually managing and making sure that the entire life cycle is managed correctly. If you look at generally individuals typically if you are investing in a lot of different private asset classes or different other asset classes you don't necessarily want to have a full back office or a middle office attached to you to manage everything right. End of the day we all live in a Ricardian world where we do best a certain amount of things and for everything else we're not that good we're not that efficient so it's not an efficient use of my time to be my own cook or my own laundry person or my own gardener so I outsource it to other people who can do it much more efficiently while I can use that time efficiently in something else I think it's a very similar approach you can do this but I don't think it is going to make economic sense for most people to manage all of those themselves And they're going to hive it off to someone else to make sure that their digital securities are kept safely, they are managed safely, and that their income or whatever other streams or whatever other benefits that accrue to them through those are properly managed without any hiccups.
0: Let me follow up with a quick question. The announcement came yesterday or the day before that Standard Chartered was also looking into building custody in this space. They've been a model for how banks can innovate at different levels with Alex Manson at SC Ventures. If now the big old dodgy custodians, that's so like a State Street or then Standard Chartered, come into the market, what does it mean for you? Is this a positive because it means acceptance, or is it obviously then a? Com- competitive situation.
2: So, I would say it is a very positive thing. The fact that large institutions find it worth their time, effort, and money to provide support for this asset class is a very, very big positive signal to the rest of the market. And as far as overall, like, are they a competitor? I don't think so at all. The type of markets that a standard chartered is going to service or a BNY Mellon is going to service is going to be a little different from the market that Propine is going to service. For a large company like BNY Mellon, and for them to start even talking to you, their cost structures and everything is so high and the opportunity cost of deploying their capital is so high that they're going to be likely working with really large funds, their sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. They're not necessarily going to service other classes. Like if that were the case, then we would have a world which literally has just one bank, but that's not the case. We have all kinds of banks that specialize for different industries or different target markets for their specialized needs. And in fact, that world is only getting more and more, you know, niche market-based, where people are getting much more used to a very personalized level of service, very personalized solutions for them. And from that perspective, I don't see why a BNY Mellon or a Standard Chartered would immediately cause my market to be eroded. In fact, I see that as a massive positive and a big validation for everything we've done for the last two and a half years.
0: Nizam, I would like to come back to what you mentioned about having been heavily involved with drafting the rules. And clearly, if you look at the virtual currency, cryptocurrency space, and the rules that are there feels, feels like the equities market 30 years ago, right? I would postulate it's heavily manipulated. There's front running market manipulation, etc. All the rules that have been built over a long time in the traditional equities markets don't apply there yet. And so how do we create a safe environment for an Investors, whether it's a digital security, tokenized security, or a cryptocurrency ultimately.
3: You are right in that a lot of the uh, rules uh, surrounding uh, market rigging, market manipulation, insider trading, front running, all kinds of market abuse, currently have not found its way yet to the cryptocurrency markets. And I think there's also a function as to how regulators think, uh, because I think the tendency is for them to think along product classes. Commodities has its own sets of regulations, securities, payments. And, uh, you know, stable coins tend to be put under payments uh, as well, and that creates some problems as well. I think it's just a matter of time before regulators pay more particular attention to the issues of consumer protection, market abuse in the crypto markets. I think it's a real issue. I think there was a report put up by the Office of the Attorney General of New York just about two or three years ago, and that points out as uh, uh, market rigging or market manipulation within crypto markets as a big issue. And I, I think we all know, I mean, those, those of us who, who trade in cryptos know that, that that is a real problem. What is the role of the industry then? There is definitely space for industry players, uh, crypto exchanges and other intermediaries to come together and set best practices for the industry. Tom and I used to be working in the Digital Exchange Association and that was one of the aspirations we had. That even in the absence of regulation, there clearly is an impetus for exchanges to come together, put in place gold standard or best practices. Because the more the markets behave themselves, the less the chances of bad regulations coming their way. So for the longest time within the classical payment space, you know, when, when you make your credit card payments or debit card payments, even in the absence of regulations then, because industry players put a large premium on regulatory or self-regulatory behavior. So when payment regulations eventually came, it was not a very big impact to these existing players. So I think the same arguments can be made for the crypto exchange players. Unfortunately, you know, we don't have that much of a stellar reputation compared to the payment space previously. But I think there's still space to do a lot within current framework.
0: You're saying maybe we can address the question of the jurisdiction itself. I mean, we're we're still thinking in terms of nation states and jurisdiction regulation that is tied into the nation state. And cryptocurrencies in the first place have started to break that down a bit. We have the Chinese DCEP coming, which apparently will be tied right into the Belt and Road Initiative. So they have an international angle on that. But also with the digital securities, it feels like the, the boundaries are of the the nation states are a little bit under attack. And so when you look at this, how do you see that evolving?
3: If I can just add one point, I think what's missing is the role of supranationals in setting international standards that is clearly missing in the case of cryptocurrencies and tokenized assets.
4: Nizam, I agree with you completely. We, we were looking at crypto player in the last couple of years. The strategy of the crypto player here was to look at the different jurisdictional requirements for getting the license. So Singapore was very attractive to this particular venture because getting that license will give them the credibility and reputation to go to other markets in this region. So I think they were clear in terms of their strategy or what is the purpose of getting around the value of getting that license as a licensed player. But they also see opportunities in the part where it's not regulated, unlicensed. So I think it's not always easy to manage both. But it's clearly, I think mentioned by the panelists, there are opportunities elsewhere. If you embark on that trajectory, that is both for me a locking constraint to some extent because you have a certain trajectory. I get licensed in market A and therefore expand to market B or C. Or should you do it concurrently, but then you look at your financial resources and your ability to expand the business model? I think you raised a question, Noble, about scalability. So that has impact in terms of how you manage this at the strategic level. So if that is not managed well, it will have impact on the ability to leverage the opportunity. So when I find these jurisdictional differences, I call this a jurisdictional arbitrage. In the hands of someone out there who's able to leverage that value, he or she can make that successful regardless of the jurisdictional requirements or regulatory requirements for that business in that market. But not every player can, I suppose, use this jurisdictional arbitrage to advantage. So some players have actually gone out of business because of this. Uh, Some are still there, but we'll see how long that can be sustained if they cannot create value, further value from this. So that's something for the players to bear in mind, talk about uh, jurisdictional differences and arbitrage opportunities.
0: You obviously believe in this market, putting a company together and the vision in that beyond carbon, the the broader commodity space is there as well. What do you think the timeline will be when would declare a somewhat mature market or let's say the next stage of development?
5: The carbon market is still early days. Going forward from that, the asset-backed token model in and around the commodity industry in a broad stroke can be incorporated across the entire trading food chain. Asia is very unique. If you look at the really the largest markets around commodities in terms of central marketplaces, sit between London and the U.S. Asia has taken stabs at commodity markets over the years. China has arisen very quickly. In the last, especially in the last decade, with the three centers—Zhengzhou, uh, Shanghai, and, and Dalian—but they're still basically closed markets. Yes, there is a access, but they're they're China relevant, not global relevant yet. The digital framework takes down all those barriers, and we were talking about liquidity before, and we we're talking about how to base markets, talking about custody, big banks versus independent custody in and around the commodity markets that actually exists. You've got independent custodians that operate the warehouses around the world that are actually not attached to the exchanges. Um, probably the London metals exchange LME is probably the best example. It's got the oldest warehouses in the world. The exchange doesn't own the warehouse, but it's attached to the exchange default methodology and pricing acceptance and such. The digital asset classes are going to get that kind of adaption. Probably the biggest challenge is the, and somebody posted a question about education, and there is no broker-dealer model in digital markets architectures. And the salesman and the educator, for the most part, up till maybe 10 years ago, the exchange wasn't the educator. It was the the Merrill Lynch's of the world in in my day when I first came to a company, an old company, Shearson. They educated their independent clients to the different products, whether it was equities or and commodities were not particularly an investment asset class at that time. Um, now they are. The education is going to come from the independent exchange, and I think, unfortunately, this tremendous amount of players they'll get whittled down over time. A strong there'll be an emergence of some dominant market leaders and different asset classes. Purely digital, or we're we going to move into the securitized token models, or in my case, asset-backed token models. It's an evolution. It's early days, but it's also generational adaptation. Up at the older end of the scale, and I love what this thing is doing. When, My conversation with a 25-year-old coming out of a master's program where his entire portfolio was he bought Bitcoin in 2013 and hit a home run to begin with. He didn't buy IBM or Coca-Cola like Warren Buffett. That's a significant difference. And adopting the technology, especially during COVID, to educating older people just on digital banking acceptance. Once you understand that you don't have to carry money anymore and people are learning that, well, they're going to learn how to understand and manage their assets. Do they have their own custodian or do they have a custodian at at their traditional banker? I think that'll evolve over time. The breaking down of the barriers and giving direct market access to all individual investors, whether it's spenders or payers, small business operators, and now commercial entities adopting it. You see it every day. There's a new announcement, like you just said, you know, Standard Chartered. I can tell you, I spoke to Standard Chartered probably eight months ago, and they're like, nah, we're not in the custody business. No, We don't want to be there. Lo and behold, we're in the custody business.
0: David, coming back to you, and it's like also maybe continue a bit the education question, you're obviously selling Chintai as a service. So you've got the infrastructure. Who are the people talking to? And how difficult is it to explain what this new technology can do if you hit like some of the incumbents with the offering? We've very much seen similar parallels with the likes of Standard Charter in
1: that we've been talking to some institutional players as much as a year or more back who were relatively negative and now they're becoming much more open in the opportunities that we were, say, 18 months ago. It's very different now to have a regulator of the quality of MAS or, or the FCA in London issuing some much more mature regulatory guidance. That's very helpful for companies of that nature to be able to then look at this and actually say, yes, this is something we can participate in because we now understand the risks associated with it. But really, for me, most of the underlying challenges with all of this, if we look at the potential for this, it's very much the vision we've just been discussing. I think what we, we also have to all realistically factor in are the regional and, and political influences and, and governments actually buying into some of this as well. Because what you potentially lose in this scenario of everybody effectively having total control over their own money and custody even at that level at a sort of supernatural level is uh, a loss of sovereignty, arguably. So I just more injecting a slightly more realistic cautionary note that we look at our own expansion is by the jurisdictions long term like the US and Canada the UK etc we're very much looking at them being compliant in those individual jurisdictional levels for now and being able to be fully compliant it would be great though to get those efficiency savings of, of the sort of hybrid model Thomas is talking about would i.e you have that single shared liquidity source order book that an underlying market can then spread out and be based upon it may be unfortunately for at least some period of time we see that being fractionalized across the national boundaries however.
0: Wonderful. Almost at the end. David, any closing comments from your side?
1: No, I mean, otherwise, I would love to connect in with all of you individually and and anybody else who's still on the call because we're now really a very short time away from entering into the FinTech Sandbox. And it's an exciting time for us. And we'd love to connect in with as many of you as possible and um, effectively get to know some of our um, partners and new friends uh, in the Singapore regions. If anybody would like to reach out to me, please do feel free to. And I'd love to uh, connect in with you after this.
0: Wonderful. So all that's left for me is to thank this wonderful panel. It's a great experience. I think everybody's open for business. So we thank Chintai for hosting this today. I would absolutely love to have this panel together in 12 months or so when the next blockchain week happens and then maybe then in person again. We can go back to what we said today and then take a checkpoint as how this whole ecosystem has developed. So I think we all agree there's lots of pieces are in motion. So thank you all. Great job and enjoy the rest of the thing. Watching. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.